Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear It Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. Welcome to Let's Hear It. It's great to have you all. And I'm here with my co-host, Kirk Brown, who has done it again. You've done another interview. If I sound a little quiet, it's because I'm weary. I've been doing so scratchy, much work. You have a scratchy yeah, throat from asking all right. those questions. So much talking, so much talking, and so much dis- disinformation that I'm trying to parse through. So yeah, if, if I sound a little bit tired, you, you'll understand why. And, and you say disinformation because it appears as though you have created a cottage industry of interviews about disinformation, which, I mean, you know, I guess if you're not paranoid if they're really out to get you, or just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that they're not out to get you. Is that right, Kirk? Until until you and I can confidently answer to each other what percentage of social media is artificial, and, and until we can answer that question and until we feel like democracy is not hanging in the balance because we can't answer that question, I'm going to be finding every disinformation expert that I can get my hands on to talk about We're what's going on. We're only going to do disinformation shows <laughs> until that time happens. Okay, well, we we better That's right. we better get on it because we have other topics That's to cover. So, Kirk, tell tell <laughs> us tell our our listeners who they're going to hear from today. Yeah, I had the chance, and she was very generous to um, uh, respond to my request and talk with me. I talked with Renee Duresta, who's a technical research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory. Renee has written about disinformation. She has testified uh, before Congress about it. She's got a very active t- Twitter account that we talked about at No Upside. No and, Upside. <laughs> and <laughs> That's because at Eeyore was taken. <laughs> That's right. And what really got me interested in talking with her most recently is that she's done terrific work on the disinformation dimensions of COVID response in the United States and particularly how anti-vaxxer efforts that have been organized through Facebook groups, et cetera, have been powerful and created a lot of, um, I would would say, created a lot of destruction for folks. And so I was interested in just picking her brain, talking with her a little bit about everything that she was seeing most recently. And it was great. She was super willing to chat and I, I really appreciated all that she had to say. And, and again, felt like I learned even more about this very, very difficult and I think very timely issue for all of us. Well, here we are with part two of Kirk's personal journey into disinformation with Renee DeResta. And welcome into another episode of Let's Hear It. I'm so pleased this week to be joined by Renee DeResta from the Stanford Internet Observatory. Renee, thank you so much for talking to me and our audience here on Let's Hear It. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm sure we're going to cover some ground today since there's so much to talk about, but I have to start here. The overarching question in my mind is, oh my gosh, what's going on and what can foundations and nonprofits do about it? What does it mean for them? But <laughs> but maybe to get started, do you want to just tell us a little bit about the Stanford Internet Observatory and your work? Kind of, kind of how do you touch this whole environment related to online social media communications and disinformation specifically? 
Yeah, so uh, Stanford Internet Observatory is a multidisciplinary research institution within Stanford Cyber Policy Center. And what we work on is understanding how information moves on the internet. We, we work on understanding the internet as a system with a particular focus on how it's abused. And that program includes education. So we teach classes. Uh, it includes research, which works on everything from forensic analysis of disinformation campaigns to investigation of kind of like emerging narratives as they're beginning to spread online. And we take the learnings from the research and use it to inform policy recommendations as well. So that's our kind of third bucket of work. And in that context, uh, we engage with governments, foundations, civil society, tech platforms directly, because we don't think that, you know, not all regulatory efforts have to necessarily be in the form of legislation. So sometimes when we're advocating for policy changes, we're looking at things that are a little bit more something with the potential to be a bit more immediate. Well, and I love how narrative shows up. I saw that in your description and then you just mentioned it now. I feel like narrative is such a great way to think about a whole system of things that, that's happening. Is, is that is that the right way to think about it? Or how does narrative inter- show up in, in terms of when you think about this work? Yeah, that's a great question. In some of the early initiatives to tackle misinformation, disinformation, that sort of thing on the internet, Hmm. there were a lot of definitional questions about what was the problem and, you know, what, what was the, you know, what were we interested in rumors and conspiracies in state sponsored Russian style information campaigns in terrorist propaganda, you know, ISIS using Twitter to recruit that sort of thing. And so the question became, you know, was there a unifying theme uh, or, term or something that encompassed a lot of these these different kind of facets of what Claire Wardle at, at First Draft called information disorder. And I think narrative is an interesting one because it gets at a few things. It gets at the fact that sometimes this is related to disinformation and misinformation and right. you know, what the government calls malign narratives. But ultimately, it's also a question of how do we think about the internet as a communication infrastructure? How do we think about it as the information environment of the day and ways in which content and stories and information traverses from platform to platform? A narrative was kind of a you know a way to describe things that were bigger than just one meme, you know, kind of thematic operations that encompassed a wide array of participants that happened to move across this social media infrastructure. Malign is a word that's come up, and I just had a chance to interview um, Nina Jenkowitz from mm-hmm. the Wilson Center. She just done a great book, you know, How to Lose the Di- Lose the Disinformation War. And she talked about malign as a very important word in terms of her work and thinking about what we're seeing in the in its impact. I actually have another question about malign. Is there any evidence that this is happening from a benign standpoint, too? Is, is, is all disinformation online just malign or, or is it, does the fact that it's disinformation inherently make it malign, you know, cause from a progressive and social change communication standpoint, I'm thinking, why are they always so much better at this stuff than we are? You know, is, is anybody trying to do this effectively on the other side of the ledger too? I, I was, I'm like, why don't we see an uprising of uh, socially and racially inclusive communities growing because we've done such a good job, you know, pumping out these concepts using all of our social media channels is there something about this that sort of throws the balance of impact on the negative versus the positive side? The first folks I heard using the term were people who worked for the government during the ISIS, you know, ISIS Twitter debacles of 2015. Uh, it was the first time that the, the the term kind of hit my radar. I think that, you know, and it may very well have a much longer kind of military or psyops or some such uh, history that I don't have for my own context. But 
benign to answer your question. I mean, I think misinformation is inadvertent, but as we spend more time on it, I think the question becomes, can we call it benign? (laughs) (laughs) Because particularly in the context of something like COVID, right, we see even if something is inadvertently shared and spread, uh, it does have potentially problematic consequences. And there is sort of like harm reduction frameworks that, that are going into some of the thinking about how we mitigate those narratives, even if they're inadvertently spread, you know, I, I don't think anybody would argue that all narratives are malign. As these, you know, as these definitions come into play, like I said, at Stanford Internet Observatory, we're looking at more kind of mechanics and processes for some of the transmission methodology, meaning narrative agnostic, I think would be the term that, that we would use, mm. where the question is not so much what is being shared but how is it being shared? And so the questions around things like authenticity or, per your point, why are certain groups better at it than other groups? Uh, Are they more willing to use tactics that some other groups would find unethical or manipulative? Mm -hmm. Usually that's behaviorally related. So it's less about the substance of the content and more about the mechanism of the distribution. Malign, I think usually, traditionally, my understanding is that it's referred a little bit more to like the actors that are behind it, you know, (laughs) is this a thing that a bad guy is putting out, you know, for nefarious purpose, as opposed to like the substance of the narrative is malign, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, it does. And it makes me wonder, are we at war? Is, is war an appropriate way to think about this, or is that an overstatement in terms of what you see in, in when you think about those actors and what's going on? Because Nina is certainly looking at it from the standpoint of a particular state actor, but I wonder if there are other state actors involved too. I mean, is it fair to say that there's a war being played out via social media channels, or, or is that too much? No, I, I mean, I, I've written on this in the past. I gave Senate testimony in 2018 to the Senate Intelligence Committee on, you know, the idea of information war. And, and I wrote an essay called The Digital Maginot Line, arguing that we were sort of fighting the last war. We were still looking at 2016 and expecting things to look like 2016. And that was sort of the adversary was evolving. And we were still stuck on the idea that there were going to be like fake Russian blogs, where, whereas like that, you know, the, the idea that uh, those who were pushing the bounds of how information operations were executed in the social media space were thinking far ahead, were thinking about how to use this new feature that had come out, this new platform, this new app, this new whatever, whereas we were still rehashing and trying to come up with regulatory solutions to the things that happened in 2016. So I don't think that the metaphor is unreasonable. I know people are sometimes uncomfortable with it because if there is a war, then there should be a retaliation, right? Or, or a response. And so the thing that made people uncomfortable with the metaphor in 2018 in particular was the idea that, you know, the U S should somehow retaliate against Russia, of course, is, you know, may as well just say it for the for the 2016 activities. And that I think, you know, the, the question became what kind of response was appropriate. It's interesting because, you know, U.S. military and, you know, most militaries have some conception of information operations as a tool used in war, whether to weaken the resolve of the population, whether to kind of cast aspersions on the enemy, so on and so forth. This is not new 
wartime propaganda is actually, you know, 70 years old, 90 years yeah, old, sure. 90 years old, probably. And that's just sort of like modern day warfare, not even yeah. including historical wartime propaganda long past. So I think the thing that's been problematic for some folks about the metaphor is that it implies that there needs to be a DOD style response. The other thing that's made people hesitant to use it has been that state actors are sort of only one actor type within this information ecosystem. So because of the structure of the information ecosystem, anyone can do this, right? And that's where you get at some of the questions of, well, is it an information war when Russia does it, but perfectly okay digital organizing when domestic U.S. actors right. do the same yeah. thing? And so, you know, this is where you get at questions related to, uh, you know, I would still argue there's actually like, yes, quite a significant difference there, but not everybody feels that way. And so that's where that consternation with the metaphor came from. Sure. Well, let's take a break. And then when we come back, I'm going to ask you specifically about the latest that you've been seeing related to COVID. And also so that my co-host, Eric Brown, doesn't get mad at me, what foundations and nonprofits should be doing with all of this information. So we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. So we're back with Renee Duresta here on Let's Hear It. And Renee, before we get into the COVID piece of this and foundations and nonprofits, um, tell us a little bit about where people can find you. And I'm just trying to understand at no upside. (laughs) It really bums me out. (laughs) Well, first of all, like Renee Duresta is like long. I feel too long to be a Twitter personally. So I never and. Also, in the early days of Twitter, nobody was using their real names, right? It was like, yeah. like it was just internet culture. So it's a reference in finance to whether or not something is a good decision. Is there upside to making that decision? Is there upside to taking that action? And I had a prior Twitter handle and was pulled into a room by a partner at the firm when I was still a trader. This was back in like 2010, maybe, mm. who told me there's no upside to you having a Twitter handle. It's... <laughs> <laughs> All liability. And I thought, you know, it was really funny because now in the era of like the great cancel debates and the letter writing campaigns and you know, all the other yeah. drama that's happening on the Internet, well, on Twitter in particular, I, I definitely have an appreciation for the kind of reputational risk of, of tweeting. Right. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was more that, oh, yeah, this must have been 2008. This was 2008, 2009 time frame, actually, because I was snarking about the, you know, during the financial crisis, various absurdities and rule changes and insane commentary from financial officials and that sort of thing. And I was just told there's no upside to you having a Twitter account. So like lock it down or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's where it came from. And like, I go back and forth periodically wondering if I should change it. Yeah. Well, it's awesome. I like it. So, you know, I saw the article that went around saying that 50% of the accounts calling for rapid reopening of the U S were bots. And, um, so it made me think about, you know, COVID response and this whole disinformation consideration, How powerful would you say or what information do we have about disinformation in play related to COVID in the United States? What would you what does that look like from where you're sitting? First of all, that particular headline, I think, was a very bad headline. And Mm. uh, 
completely unsupportable given the information that's come out so far. I don't think that the researchers have put out their findings yet. Interestingly, misinformation about disinformation is is a problem too. (laughs) You don't want to overstate the threat. You don't want to cry wolf, right? You Mm -hmm. want to appropriately contextualize it and make people understand that in this information environment, this is the kind of prevalence of digital propaganda and misinformation and disinformation. And these are the forms it takes and what it looks like. But you also don't want them thinking that, you know, every single person they talk to on Twitter is a secret Russian bot, right? Because that's not real either. Sure. And that also creates unhealthy degrees of suspicion. And and it makes it really easy for people to discount people who aren't like them, right? I don't Mm. have to listen to you. You have MAGA in your bio, ergo, you must be a Russian bot. That's not the, the kind of discourse that, that we want to see. The challenge is that there are certain things that go wildly viral and achieve kind of massive uptake. And sometimes those things are overtly wrong and misleading. And in the context of COVID, the problem is that overtly wrong and misleading has very severe public health consequences. Yep, yep. Back in 2015, you know, I actually got my start in this field looking at anti-vaccine content back in, in 2015, looking at organizational methods and how they spread narratives and so on and so forth. And it was largely discounted. It was largely treated as like this is a free expression issue. Hmm. Up until around 2019, when recurrent measles outbreaks and diseases that had been largely dealt with in the prevalence of American activists harassing government officials and you know, the Facebook page of the government of Samoa when they were trying to deal with a measles outbreak that had killed 80 babies by that point, that, that people began to say like, okay, maybe enough is enough here. Wow. And with COVID, you saw that continue also, this idea that misinformation about a pandemic was going to have potentially disastrous public health consequences. And as it turned out, that that is in fact quite true. Mm-hmm. The question has been, how do you balance free expression with the recognition that some forms of misleading expression have demonstrable harms? And that is where the policies related to health misinformation, particularly dealing with the prevalence of health misinformation, the speed with which some of these hoax cures and misleading information can spread, has made the platforms treat it as like a separate class of misinformation. So very distinct from somebody telling you folk advice your grandma would give you versus somebody telling you that you don't need to wear a mask and colloidal silver will cure COVID if you get it. Yeah. Differences in how we think about harms and then how we treat those harm mitigation as a separate policy area almost where that trumps free expression. So would you say there's been substantial COVID disinformation or not so much? Or and is it is it coming from organic voices from the US or is it is it something organized externally? Yeah, no, great questions. I think with the volume, it's really hard to get a sense of what what is the denominator for content on the internet. Yeah. Even on Facebook, you know, we have visibility into public posts and public groups and we can gauge for certain keywords or certain terms, how they're used positively versus negatively, or, you know, is somebody reacting to misinformation by debunking it or by sharing it along? Like there, there are some ways to do those kinds of studies. Well, and here's my, my favorite question about social media is that uh, what percentage of social media total is artificial versus not? Do we know that? I don't think, no, I don't think we do. And I think that's because when we talk about social media, you're talking about an ecosystem, right? So there may be four or five huge platforms in America, plus each country kind of has their own area where they localize, plus there's 
chat as a vector, there's email as a vector, there's all of the teeny tiny discords out there in the world. There's the secret groups on Facebook, which, you know, we certainly have no visibility into. I Again, the platform companies probably have some sense within their own individual walled garden, but answering that question writ large is hard. So what you try to do is look at things more like, are there vulnerable communities that are prone to accepting, internalizing, or adopting harmful misinformation that then in turn serve as conduits to spread it outwards. You can have a state with 95% vaccination rates, but if there are schools in that state that have 30% vaccination rates, then that that sub-community is exposed to the threat of disease and then can in turn spread it into vulnerable members of the surrounding community. And so again, while the overall numbers may look good, there are still these pockets where things can kind of take hold. When we think about information and narrative spread, one of the things that we point to with regard to even like the Russian operation in 2016, we have quantifiable numbers of posts there. We have quantifiable numbers of engagements. You know, the data has been aggregated. But what's interesting about it is that they targeted specific communities. So the question of per capita across the United States, what was their engagement like versus within the coal miners in Pennsylvania that they targeted or the black community in Baltimore that they targeted, what percentage of those people that they considered the target of the information saw it and internalized it as opposed to the entirety of the country. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And that level of sophistication makes me think that they were being advised by top-notch U.S.-based black hat PR firms. Do you think that's possible? You know, there's been no evidence of that. They they actually sent their own people here for a road trip across the U.S. Uh, they sent a handful of people to do ethnography around Texas and a couple of other places. Uh, the Mueller report kind of details what form that took because they wound up, I think, indicting some of the individuals who were part of that fact-finding. What advice can we give to foundations and nonprofits thinking about how to navigate this seemingly inc- incredibly difficult terrain? Sure. So there's a couple of different phases to the work, I would say. Our, our funding comes from foundations and individuals, so you can fund us. <laughs> mm, sure, yes. And that's the, uh, the, the research piece, right? How do you quantify it? How do you gauge impact? How do you build tools for detecting? We're very interested in serving in that part of the ecosystem. But when we think about our COVID, we have a COVID project and an election 2020 project right now. We have a lot of research assistants and postdocs and excellent folks who work at SIO who specialize in either particular regions or topics. And so when we orient our projects, we try to understand not only what's happening in the U.S., but what's happening in Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, you know, Nigeria. So we have a bunch of different teams that are looking at COVID, for example, in its global manifestation. And so I think understanding that even a lot of actual bad actors like Russian influence operations teams that are running those operations trial their tactics in Africa and other places first. I think the other facet, though, is how do you counter it? And that's where you're getting at with COVID misinformation or even with election misinformation. Who is the most authentic voice that can address the misinformation within the targeted community? That becomes a whole other area. Who does the fact checks? Who does the corrections? Who reaches out to the targeted community? Usually someone who's a member of that community uh, to say, this isn't accurate. Here's the you know, here's the here's the real story or here's the truth. Because so much of 
how we process information comes from whether we trust the source of the correction at this point. And so that I think is the other big area where myself and a few other folks who sit on the research to describe, detect, track, and alert people to the problem. So that kind of first phase of the problem, that's the one bucket. And then we try to find partners who are able to take on the other bucket and work on getting those corrections out there, mitigating the the impact or the effect. It's almost like those nonprofits could become locally based truth tellers in the node, if you will, or aggregators or help synthesize information to make it more effective. Is that is that one way to think about it? I think, yeah, I think there's a real role for civil society to do that. I think that that's an area that's a, a huge gap. You know, we, we saw this with the State Department with ISIS back in the day in 2015, right? There were certain accounts on Twitter that were doing a good job recruiting the sympathetic, right? Recruiting the questioning, so to speak. And the State Department for a while was trying to tweet out, you know, discouraging messages. They had a hashtag campaign called Think Again, Turn Away. There are very few people who find ISIS persuasive who are going to be unpersuaded by the U.S. State Department tweeting at them. Yeah. It's, it's one example, but it kind of gets at the, the challenge of who is your most authentic, trusted voice who understands your life circumstances and why you might be receptive to this information that can counter the information if it is either inauthentic or malign or wrong. So I would say those are the two big areas for foundations, funding those of us who are working on the detection and identification and early warning systems, if you will, thinking about how malign narratives are spreading. And then on the flip side, ensuring that the civil society and fact checkers and the pro-vaccine voices, as another example, have resources to handle the countering piece. When it seems like in our work, the closer you get to authentic community, the better and stronger you always are. Yeah. Is, is, is there something true, to, true about that in this context too? I believe so. It's the trust problem. <laughs> yes. That's bigger than the internet, right? So unfortunately, not a thing that we're going to fix with Facebook regulation. It is a, a very real, hard, movement-building type collection of activities that, that have to happen that are not as easy as saying we should change moderation. It's kind of like, here's the low-hanging fruit where we should change moderation, yes. And here's this other side of it, which is how do people relate to each other in a low-trust, polarized country? And that's unfortunately a bigger problem than just technology. But I'd have to say, let's address the trust problem is a great rallying cry for all of us as we move forward. I think that's that's just awesome. So I think you've actually left us at a very good, and I would argue somewhat optimistic place, Renee. Renee, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Is there anything you'd like to share before we liberate you back to your very busy life and schedule? We always love for people to have a look at our work, and we are io.stanford.edu. Renee Duresta here on Let's Hear It. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. And we are back with the world's great interviewer, Kirk Brown, and <laughs> and disinformation. So it's always this is interesting. I went to the website of one of Renee Duresta's former organizations, and in order to get in, I had to do one of those CAPTCHA things just to get past the homepage. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it, it, it kept making me pick the umbrellas, and I just first I kept getting it wrong, and so I never got in. Uh, but you know, I didn't. I certainly didn't hack the site. What is it about disinformation that's got you in such a tizzy, Kirk? Well, number one, I think that we're seeing the real human consequence of disinformation more acutely today than we even saw it as we thought about the implications for a presidential election. So let me turn that question around to you. 
and ask you for a couple of numbers. So number one, how many people in the United States today have died as a result of COVID-19? What's your, what's your, yeah, what's your rough sense? You know, it's 135,000 or something like that. That's right. As of, as of our recording and by the time it is out on the air, I'm sure it will be many more, uh, you know, which is tragic and horrifying and, and I don't know what to say about that. And have you heard in the United States that some people don't think you should wear masks right. <laughs> because they don't do any good? good. Right. So here's a question I ask you. Do we think that dif- disinformation is being focused on the United States as it relates to COVID? And if so, is that campaign having the effect of actually costing people's lives that otherwise would be spared? What's surely, your feeling about that? Surely, surely disinformation is costing people's lives uh, around COVID because COVID has now become, due, due to disinformation or misinformation or every other non-information, uh, it has become a political thing instead of a health thing. And as we know, the virus doesn't give a rip about what party you belong to. It just wants to propagate itself. So let's double down then on this on this little journey we're on. So what percent of those 130,000 deaths would you attribute to yeah. this information? I don't know. It's more than zero. That's the answer. More than zero. Let's say it's between zero and 50 percent. So somewhere between some several thousand to as many as over 60,000 U.S. deaths in six months are happening as a result of disinformation on this topic. Now step back and reflect on the Vietnam War and that it took us 20 years in Vietnam to lose 58,000 Americans. And that's such a significant thing that we have a, we have a, a monument, a memorial to those lost lives on the, on the Washington Mall. So to me, that's, that's why this whole topic of disinformation is so important. We're seeing the real human consequence, you know, and again, it's, it's, it's much as you would say that a shift in electoral campaign is, is, is a, an astounding testament to the impact this piece around the real public health dimensions and, and seeing people lose their lives all over the country. If you, if, you, if you believe, which I do, that there's disinformation, at least in the background, for part of that, I think it's important for us to be thinking about it. The other thing that I would okay, say, wait, though, before you, before you go, go to the yeah, other thing, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. do want to push back slightly against your premise because I don't think I think that the disinformation around masks, I think the information around masks wasn't about a, a malign intent in order that was designed to kill people. It was a a use of politics to try to reelect the president or to keep the economy open just in time for the election and things like that. And if that meant that people got sick and died, then, well, you know, that was a casualty of that. I mean, the lieutenant governor of, of Texas said so much uh, early, early on. So it, that's different to me than disinformation that was des- that has been designed to exacerbate the tension around the movement for black lives, which was clearly done with malign intent. Let us do what we can to stoke uh, race challenges in America. I mean, that's that's different. I mean, I, I, I see your point, though, which is that by trying to obfuscate or to to blur the minds around masks or things like that, people are clearly dying. But so I don't know. Do you disagree? No, I think that's a very fair point. But I think that actually gets uh, well done, Eric, because I actually leads me into the second thing I thought was so interesting. Talking oh, about with Ren- Ren- that's, with that's Renee is for. that well, no, and, and this is your thing too. So she talks about maligned narratives, maligned narratives. So, right. so there's the malign intent. What are you trying to do? But the more interesting part of it, almost the way that she was talking about it, is thinking about all of the mechanisms that those narratives, how they get picked up, how they get spread, how they how they propagate. And so, to me, for those of us that are in this progressive social change communication space. In a weird way, these malign narratives, when we see how profoundly impactful they can be, 
isn't there part of you that thinks, why can't we harness the exact same sensibilities, but, but make the world a better place? Right. You know, I mean, if you can kill tens of thousands of people in six months doing it this way, why can't you lift that many more out of poverty, you know, using this tool? So, so to me, that was the really interesting thing in talking with Renee about this is that it really felt like she was, she was coming at it, not just about, you know, this particular malign campaign. And again, whatever that campaign might be about, but she's really been looking at it in terms of how all the pieces fit together. And that to me was just incredibly interesting. And frankly, is so complicated and almost, it almost causes my head to explode to try to think about how all the pieces fit together. I mean, did that come out for you or, or what do you, what do you think about that given that you're all the work you've been doing with narrative? Well, I think one thing we know, we've always known, which is that it is way easier to go negative than to go positive. It is much easier to sow doubt and confuse people than to create an affirmative narrative that has people following you. It's so much easier. The disinformation part is so much easier than the information part and shaping a narrative, which is why, I and mean, we've talked about this on, in past episodes, recent past episodes, the work that has been going on, and I, Sabil Rahman talked about it in the previous episode, which is that the positive narrative work has been going on for years and years and years. And the movement for black lives in many ways is the culmination of that work in which a lot of these threads have come together. But that takes a long time. It's almost generational. Whereas you can run a disinformation campaign that is the equivalent of like, you know, kaboom, blowing up just about anything in no time at all. And ooh, by the way, you did your interview with Renee, I think it was the day after the Twitter hack, which yeah. was <laughs> I, I was like I was listening to it like ah. It's too bad that you hadn't yeah. had that conversation the day before, which yeah. is that wasn't a mis that wasn't a, a disinformation or a misinformation campaign. It was just a flat old cyber crime in which right. the Twitter profiles of a bunch of prominent people were hacked. And it was dead easy for these four guys and basically living in their parents basements to, to pull that off. And that is the tip of the iceberg. And I saw a piece in the Times uh, today, I think, where they said, whoa, what if they had what if it was Election Day and somebody Ugh. hacked into Twitter and Biden says, I've, I just had an aneurysm. There are right. so many ways to upset democracy through this tiny little mechanism. And now if you have a bunch of whatever it is, Russian bots or somebody working together to really sow disinformation, then who oh boy. Yeah, it's if we make it through this election, it'll be a miracle. Well, isn't it astounding how precarious it is? And, and it, it's almost like the larger these companies get, the larger these networks get, the more precarious it gets, right? And so uh, the other thing I did in this interview is I asked the question, which I have been <laughs> schooled about asking before. And I loved the answer. So the question, of course, is what does this mean for foundations and nonprofits? And, do you have any thoughts or feedback? about what they had to say, because I found that also to be a very interesting part of the conversation. Well, it's it's interesting because, you know, to the person with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And to someone who's raising money to, to combat disinformation, the answer to what what can foundations do, the answer is, is give more money. But uh, I, I thought that was half the answer. I think the other half of the answer is to understand how this affects your grantees and to ensure that they have the tools they need and the strategies in place to be able to deal with this sea of disinformation that we're all swimming against, uh, this tide of disinformation. So I think that's, that's, I think, part B to the answer to that. And if you're a nonprofit, you have to understand 
what you're up against. And you have to understand how to combat things that are lies, how to deal with people who are confused, how to all that kind of stuff. So I, there's another part. Yes, I agree. Fund, fund, fund this work. But also, if you're a funder, understand that your grantees are operating in this context and support them accordingly. And then if you're a grantee, you have to, you really have to have, you know, we used to do regular crisis communications plans. I think a lot of those are just flat out, out the window. Many of the scenarios in my crisis communications plans is what happens if people are picketing in your driveway? Like, ha, 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 I would love it if people make it in my driveway now. What if they hack your systems? What if they tell your lies about you? What if, they, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, it is a, not a brave, it is a dark new world of, of crisis response. Totally. And one of the things that Renee talked about is that, so number one, I'm curious to know, I'm sure it's out there, and I will continue doing some research so we can maybe have these folks on the podcast, but... Where does the epicenter of foundation and nonprofit thinking in response to this notion of disinformation live? You know, where where is where is it actually happening in a more systematic way? But one of the things that Renee talked about is the notion that when you're trying to combat this disinformation, the quality of the messengers and the more closely they link to actual authentic communities, that becomes all the more important. And and I feel like this is a thread that's come up quite a bit as we talk about narrative, as we talk about the role of communications in advancing progressive and social change these days is this link back to authentic community and elevating a range of diverse, inclusive, and authentic voices that really are grounded in real communities, how crucial that is. I don't know. I, I feel like it's part of what we think of when we think about movement. We think about all these organizations out there doing such good work, but it feels like it's like these nonprofits living almost as beacons of light around which community, real community can form. It just feels like it's a really important part of the strategy. What do you think about that? Renee's coming at this from this very sophisticated assessment analysis work of all of this happening and all across all these spaces. And she's talking about narrative as the mechanism of action and then community on authentic voices as a key part of the antidote. I mean, I, I think that's really profound and really cool to think about. Yeah, totally agree. And we've been talking about this a lot, which is that these kinds of narratives they endure a positive narrative that people can connect with on an emotional level, on a visceral level. Those narratives endure. The only problem is that in the face of disinformation and, and people who are trying to confuse, it takes longer and it is harder to, to sink in. On the other hand, you know, people are not bots. You know, it's, it's like mm -hmm. you actually right. have human beings who are really doing things, who are, who are creating in ways that we that are responsive to the moment that are you know, that are new. So I, I think that, yes, I mean, it, it is hard. It is long, hard work. And that's the other thing that foundations have to fund, which is fund this work for t over time. Yeah. Because you, you're not going to turn this thing on a dime. You're going to have to invest in people and institutions over the long haul because they're going to be building those narratives and generating the kinds of communities that are working on this stuff that it, it just takes time. Well, I was so appreciative of Renee to take the time and just, you know, talk with me about it. There's clearly so much more that we could be getting into. And um, I do think this is timely. I do think it's important. I do think there's a major election happening in the backdrop. And so That's there's a I'm possibility thinking. we might hear some other voices along these lines. All right. Well, we'll see. <laughs> hey, by months. the way, I wanted to take one more minute to just mm. note that I, uh, Larry Kramer, my former boss at the Hewlett Foundation, just made an announcement that they were going to do a large, I think it was $150 million commitment to racial equity. And that was just, I saw that and I was, I was pleased to see it. 
And Wonderful. my response is that I certainly hope that many, many, many other foundations will, will follow that lead because it's important work. I will also say, as a minor pushback, that I think foundations need to start spending above their 5% payout mm. rate right now. There is no <laughs> perpetuity uh, that there there is really today, and we need to be, we don't have a lot of time to waste. Well, is there any more obvious case where if you could just make major investments in equity today, is there any better case to be made for the tremendous payback that comes from that down the road? Yeah, it's just, I, I it totally just seems so clear. So I don't know if Hewlett's commitment was over and above its, its standard payout. They're very smart about planning, and they leave themselves room for opportunities. This may be that. But I also think that this is the time to just put your foot on the gas. So, But good, good for Hewlett, and, and I, hope others, I hope others follow suit. Wonderful. Well, Renee, thank you. Thank you again. The Stanford Internet Observatory. Heed her call, fund her work, follow her writing, and we'll keep following the breadcrumbs of disinformation and see where that takes us. Yeah, and thanks to everybody for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. Please, please. S- send us a note. Tell us what you think. Tell us how we can do better. This was, uh, I don't know, our 36th or 37th episode. We do it every other week, come hell or high water, and sometimes both. So we're, right. we're happy to do it, and we're happy you're there. Hey, do we get to write a 40 things we've learned after 40 episodes uh, blog if, post? If, yeah, if you feel like it. <laughs> I'm just going to be painting that fence. <laughs> well, thank you, Eric. This is fun. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show, and that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no, thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it.